people talking, hunters everywhere. Doesn't get any better. I only thing I was wondering is like, is this headset gonna mess my hair up? Pretty much a one species wonder. So all I know is samba deer, but the more the more I think I know, the more I realise I need to learn more. There's a there's a movement in the blackberry bushes and the cloak of invisibility gets switched off and Rogers appears. With the crazy world we live in today, many of us seek adventure of the unknown. Join the five of us everyday Aussies from all walks of life, share stories from men and women of all hunting camps. From tips and techniques to the emotional rollercoaster ride fulfilling a lifelong dream, there is a story to be told by all. Welcome to Hunting Camp Down Under. Good evening and welcome to Hunting Camp Down Under. Um, I'm sitting here with a, a friend that I've known for a long time in, in Stuart Forbes. I'm just actually in his house and pretty keen to have a look in his trophy room because he's he's done a bit of travelling around the world. He's been there, done a lot. Um, I hit him up for a podcast only a few weeks ago, really, so it's all been pretty quick to happen, but it's going to be a good talk. It'll be entertaining. There'll be some laughs, so... Thanks for coming on board, Stu. Yeah, thanks for the invite, Josh. Um, I've been looking forward to uh, sitting down and having a chat with you for a while um, since we first sort of reconnected on Instagram. Yeah. I've been following your posts every day and, um, you know, it's great to see that you haven't changed and you're still, uh, you know, around the same traps and <laughs> the, um, the, old, the old Samba deer hunting traps in Victoria. Um, I've been gone a while, so... Um, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's good to see you. Yeah, Absolutely. so you went up to Darwin for a little bit. That's where we sort of misaligned a little bit, but now you're back. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, reluctantly. Yeah. Um, I I spent a good seven years up there raising the kids. Um, we went up there with a young family, and um, and I guess they're all the you know well they're teenagers now, and um, yeah, we've. We we've come back. Um, I guess this is you know this is our roots. Um, uh, our family's down here, um, you know, and we had uh, we had plans, um, you know, that I guess changed over the years. And yep. um, you know, uh, yeah, I guess work brought me back. In, in all said and done, yeah. Um, you know, chasing the dollars uh, to sustain the lifestyle. Uh, unfortunately. Yeah. So you were still running your business from Darwin, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So when we moved up, um, we had a, um, a construction business, um, in, in Melbourne and I managed to, um, do that remotely as, yeah. as well as work up there, um, uh, for myself in, in the construction as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I had uh, a fair bit of time on my hands while I was up there. I was living, living the dream for a while. Yeah. Um, it was a good lifestyle. Uh, and I could certainly do it again all, you know, do it all over again. I tell you. There's, yeah. There's there's no reservations there. I, I would um, I really enjoy Darwin. My, my heart's still in Darwin, and it's a big part of me there. And unfortunately, um, you know, we've we've made some decisions to come back. The kids schooling and uh, sports activities and my work and yeah. So you know, it was a, certainly a, um, a time worth spent. Yeah. So we'll cover off on some of the stories about the hunts up there and the fishing and the adventures. But can you just take us through a bit about how you got started in hunting? So you you didn't really come from a hunting family, so no. Nah, um, yeah, sure. Um, I guess you know I, I always 
I always spent time in around the bush. Cause we we grew up in Bronya. Um, we had some bush blocks around the place, and you know the the Dandong Ranges um, out past Bronya, Kilsyth South, and the Basin area. So I'd always find uh, refuge in, you know, going out there on a weekend and and plotting around and making little cubbies and you know little traps and all sorts of things. And I'd take me mates out there and. I'd, um, you know, I'd try and get them lost and then run off them and, <laughs> and then watch to see what they do. And I tried that on the kids not long ago either, but they were a bit more cluey. They'd spend a bit more time than I had at that stage. And I'd, yeah, but uh, no, I'd um, not, not come from a, a hunting family, but for some reason hunting uh, managed to call me. You know, I, I was always fascinated. Uh, as a youngster, uh, I was born in Scotland and my dad would take me there into the farms and fields where he grew up in Scotland and uh, we, we'd tour and walk around the early mornings and, uh, you know, we'd see deer and weasels and pheasants and that and just something in that period of my life just was instilled in me, you know, that wilderness, that the wild and yeah. um, it, it just, um, it, it, it just, it, I gravitated towards that, you know. Yeah. So no, didn't didn't come from a hunting family, but um, definitely was keen to be part of the hunting uh, fraternity and, and 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 learn how to hunt. You know. Yeah, and we were chatting just earlier about, and I didn't realise, but you actually started bow hunting or archery at a much earlier stage than what I give credit for. Yeah. Um, I thought it was something that you've just started doing later in life, but you would have been nearly some of the first guys in the Lilydale Archery Club, I suspect? Um, yeah, so so my old man, um, he bought the farm. It was a, a chicken farm down in Kilsyth South there, um, you know, and way before all these lifestyle blocks had sort of popped up everywhere and um, it was still a bit semi-rural down there and, and the Archery Club was just up the road from me. Um, so uh, that was very handy and convenient. Um, and they had the ABA, you know, animal target archery and all that. And yeah, I just, that, that was, that was, uh, that was something I started up actually after I'd um, made a trip over to Canada. Um, so 1998, um, I'd, I'd only got my rifle license in about 96. 98, uh, family friend went over there and they invited me on a hunt. Um, first hunt that I'd had uh, on big game. So prior to that, it was just your, your, your foxes, your hares, your rabbits, that sort of local stuff that yeah. I grew up with, the 22 uh, on the on my dad's farm, and, and that was all cool. But, um, yeah, he, he introduced me to, to bow hunting when I was in Canada. Um, and then, yeah, I became a, became a member of Ludale, um, um Bow Club uh, back in about 98. Yep. Um, and then... Um, and then from there on, I um, uh, I I hunted uh, more so. Uh, well, actually, I more so shot bow, uh, sport archery, yeah. more so than I hunted yeah. um, at that stage. Um, uh, it was then uh, came a time where I met John uh, John John Scollop, um, yeah. who ran the Hound Crew, and um, he was after some food for his dogs, and that's how we connected. And that's when I made that step over into uh, hunting with the hounds. Yeah, okay. So that was because of the chicken farm, was it? Or yeah, yep. So, yeah, we had the chicken farm. Um, it was 10 acres and uh, we had about, well, I think it was about 15,000 birds at the yeah. time. Um, and we were 
um, yeah, we were looking, we were getting out of the chicken industry. We yeah. we had a construction business, and yeah, we were we were sort of winding that back. And um, John probably came at a good time, and um, yeah, he was he was there to feed his dog, so he was you know getting his hands dirty, skinning the chickens, and, and freezing the chickens for his dogs, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so just touching back on a sec, you mentioned that you went to Canada on your first hunt. So not many people are going to say that their first hunt was actually international or first big game hunt was international. So, um, yeah, tell us a bit about that. I've been looking at the, the deer on the wall. So Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, family friend. Um, uh, we, we went over to uh, Alberta um, and we had uh, planned a two-week uh, trip over there and my wife, uh, who was my girlfriend at the time, she, would, um, she, she was uh, friendly with uh, this guy's sisters and uh, while me and him were um, out in the bush for the, the next 12 days, she, she would go out with the sisters every day. So that, that worked out well and that gave me a chance to um, just get, get out into the, um, into the bush of Alberta and, um, and hunt um, with, with a rifle at that stage, um, elk and, and mule deer. We, we, had, we actually had tags for elk, mule deer, uh, whitetail and bear. Um, and it was, I guess, you know, my first introduction to sort of big game hunting. And it was, it, 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 it was a lot of walking and that's, that's what I recall. I mean, it's a long time ago, and I know we woke up early and we walked all day. And for very little reward, it was a private hunting. It wasn't a private. It was actually uh, crown land, uh, public yeah. public hunting blocks. And um, you know, I was just in awe of all the the scenery, wildlife, bird life, just you know, all the vegetation, the mountains, and it was just an amazing place to be. And um, you know, it was only closer to the end of that first two weeks when we finally heard uh elk bugle and um uh i think it was two days prior to the end of our hunt um so you know it was about 10 days in and um we, we were doing it tough we were doing it really tough we'd seen moose we'd seen um you know plenty of um those partridge and um the bear tracks um you know had a, a few failed opportunities on on, on deer this, at this time there was no bows involved but um, you know, we just we couldn't capitalise and, and and get get one on the ground, but um, yeah, it's, uh, and and we couldn't hunt on the Sundays. I, I recall that. Obviously, that's um, the the day that you know they they give thanks, and and um, you know we weren't able to hunt on a Sunday, so we'd pull out on that Sunday, and then we'd hunt again. And um, so you know, we finally uh, we finally got onto some elk, and and and. They they were busy bugling and, and that I remember the first time I heard that I'd stepped out of the little camper we were uh, camping in um, and this <coughs> and uh, it was a crisp night the stars were out and it was icy cold and when those elk were bugling like it's it's something I'll never forget you know the first yeah. time you hear that and um, uh, that next morning I mean we were so excited and um, we'd we'd um planted ourselves up on this ridge and uh and we were calling we were thrashing bushes and uh nothing nothing was really responding and um everything had gone quiet and we sat down we had something to eat and there was this lone bull and i had the gun in my lap and my mate had seen it i hadn't seen it and it was about 30 yards in front and he, and he was tapping me with his knee and uh and he's and he's nodding with his head 
and, and just his, you know, his body language and, and his, um, and, and he's just sort of nodding forward. The, the, there's a bull there trying to whisper to me, and for the life of me, I could not see it. And and he's trying to throw every gesture at me to say where it is, and without being too obvious, without waving his hands, and and I could not see it for the life of me. And uh, he's he's grabbed the gun and he shot it. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't part of the deal. In actual fact, we, we really didn't have a, 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 any concrete deals. I mean, it, this this was just him taking me out um, as a visitor. And um, so he shot it and um, and it was pretty cool, man, walking up to the Elk for the first time. Oh, you know, I was only maybe 24 at the time, something like that. And um, it was a big animal. And now we spent the, the rest of that day, I swear, with the rest of that day cutting that thing out, we were probably only maybe... 200 meters to get to the vehicle um and there was a bit of a ravine like a, a creek that we had to get the meat down and up on the other side and it was a backbreaker we we uh we caught it all up we by law you have to take it all out you tag it you know and, and they're they're a real stickler for the the rules and yep. um and so that was a learning curve too you know um what they go through um the troubles um just the heartache and the effort to recover all the meat and everything. And on he, he, he had to walk out, go and grab his vehicle. On the way out, he come across a guy uh, who was just sort of road hunting, tracking roads and that, and thought he'd lend us a hand. And when he came back with this chap, um, you know, he, he sort of rammed his way in and just knocked all these pine trees out with his, his Jeep, with his bull bar, and just made a trail <laughs> right in as close as we could get it. It was still 200 metres. We, we had to get the meat to the, to the vehicle, but... Um, it was a help, and I, when he arrived, I thought, oh, "Yeah, he's got, this guy's a big guy, you know. He's, he's going to help me." I tell you what, man, he gassed out. He gassed out in, in I reckon, about the first fifty yards, <laughs> mate. <laughs> and um, and you know, like I really, we really put an effort into that. Like that, the kind of effort I put into that hunt, I just, I don't know if I could do that again today, you know. Yeah. But, but that was uh, two days prior to the end of the hunt, and that that was um, a good um, introduction to, to elk hunting. To you know yeah yeah pretty pretty interesting start for you anyway yeah, so it was great yeah so then from there you met john scallop probably in his infancy so yeah <laughs> yeah 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 um the infamous uh john scallop hey um uh, actually um john uh yeah so so there um so so yeah get it so those were the days of the farm when we had the chickens and and john came down and um he invited me out uh, for a hunt so that was pretty much around the same time I'd met John actually when I'd just been over to Canada yeah um because the, the following year I went back to Canada but this time I was bow hunting you see um so that year I ended up shooting a um a uh well a mule deer with a rifle actually and yep. and um, because so you, you can hunt over there in, in Canada uh a, a bow and then and then the hunting with a rifle begins yeah yeah so um, actually, um, missed two white-tailed deer with a bow and a tree stand. Yeah. So that was my first year of bow hunting, um, which was unfortunate. I was pretty gutted about that, but that's how it works. And I spent many days in a tree stand, many hours, and only to walk out at night. Uh, so get get in there in the dark and walk out at night. And then I'd hear all sorts of animals crashing off. And during the day, I'd see fresh bear prints and that kind of put the wind up me. And yeah. I had a fair bit, yeah, a fair hike back to the camp every night, you know uh by myself um and um anyhow we yeah i'd, I'd missed those those white tail and then we um I, I ended up shooting that mule deer you see on the wall there and um 
so that that was a good reward. Um, um, and then, and then, yeah, coming back to the John Scollop uh, days. Um, yeah, so John Scollop, he ran his own hound crew. Um, you know, heck, tw- twenty years prior to me meeting him, yep. so he's been in the game a long time and um, just just a wealth of knowledge and a, a real a real character. Um, At that yeah. point, though, you're starting. So the Coopers would have been there at that point or were they a little bit after? Yep, yep. yep. So I think I came in on the tail end of when John had his, his you know, that notorious pack of his that yeah. were just the A-team dogs. And um, so, yeah, John, uh, John and Graham were a partnership back then. Um, I think they'd been hunting together for at least a season or two yeah. prior to me arriving. Um, yeah. And I, I arrived pretty green. Although I was, um, you know, look, at the time I was very fit because I was into my sport, um, but I was green and, you know, I didn't have the knowledge or the experience of of hunting the Australian uh, alpine bush, you know. Um, Yeah. There was some plenty of adventures and some of the best dogs that I've personally ever seen were in that pack. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Any, Uh, Any in particular stand out for you? You looked uh, after a lot of them, so... Uh, yeah, see, well, we had the farm and, um, you know, as, as the months went by and as the years went by, I got more and more into it and uh, and I learnt, you know, and and, and I consider that uh, uh, an apprenticeship, really. I, honestly, I really do. I, uh, having teachers like John and Graham, um, you know, from from someone who's pretty green and really... Green in, in many ways, and not just green about... The, the deer, the shooting, um, you know, the, the way the hunt's set up and, um, you know, the, the dogs, working with dogs, working with a team, working with the radios and trackers and, uh, and learning the bush, learning the tracks, uh, fall driving. You know, I was, I was just green in so many ways, you know, um, just being part of a team and, and playing with the team, you know, and um, that was all new to me. And, and I really took that on pretty serious because I was – Man, I was in in like the D grade, and there was, you know, I mean, there was guys like you, Josh, when when I first started, man. You know, you you what are you probably? I'm I'm your senior, at least what five six years yeah. maybe. And um, I mean, I, I recall one time you came in, and I wasn't there, and you, you'd shot six deer for the day, and you know, I mean, John and and Graham were were shooting big numbers, but no one had done that at the time, you know, and that was just highly impressive. And wow, didn't everyone talk about that, you know, and so, you know, I mean, I lacked the experience in 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 those early years, but I I soon um I soon developed quick with with, you know, when you've got an A team around you with you know like, the, I've always thought there's some players in a team that are designed to score goals, and there's others that are midfield players that are workhorses, and there's the defenders, and you know if everyone's part of a good team and they're all putting in everyone will will, will reap su- success at one stage you know yeah and um but when you've got some good leaders like um john and, and graham uh, to really show you the ropes and, and lead the way you know and drive the crew and uh rain hell or shine didn't matter what kind of weather they, they were there mm. you know and um so they had a lot to offer you know yeah and we had numerous times where we'd be spending the whole day in the bush on foot and you're still walking out at 11 o'clock at night, but those guys would be sitting on top of the ridge, they'd have a fire going for you. Yeah. They'd walk walk in four or 500 metres just to meet you on your way out. Like, they were really committed. Yeah, um, exceptional pack of dogs. We got some beautiful deer mm. in, a, in around those times. 
Um, and there's a lot of bushcraft to be learned through that as well. So, yeah, it was good times. Some yeah. of the best times I ever had oh, was absolutely. in that in that group. And quite often there might have only been three or four of us, just yeah. Graham, John, you and myself, and yeah. that was it. But, yet, oh. yeah. Ah, oh, mate, it, it, it saddens me to think that those times are, have come and gone, Yeah, you know. Um, but, you know, look, I reflect back and I think there's not a week goes by I don't think about those days. Um, you know, they were just, I was impressionable and um, I had a lot to learn. And, um, you know, when, when you're sort of, when you're the odd person out and, and everyone around you sort of knows what they're doing and they're shooting deer and, and, and they're, they're like the work rate of these guys were just not like anyone that I've met, you know. I yeah. mean, when I first came, um, you know, I'd be sitting up on the track not knowing what to do and I, a lot of it I had to sort of, you know, navigate and think my, you know, think on my feet, you know, think think while it's all happening and, and do something, be proactive, you know. Uh, I wasn't getting a lot of instruction at the time. That wasn't John's, you know, it's not on his methods, you know. Mm. You, you you know, but he would expect you to put in and, yeah. and so, but but how do I do that? Like, where do I go? What do I do? I got to keep asking questions. I got to got to try something. Got to try this, and it was just I was just getting it wrong all the time, and uh, I was really, you know, but I knew I was fit, you know, yeah. and I was fitter than everyone, yeah. and, and I knew that, and that's yeah. that's the one thing I had to give, you know, and then you know like like that time you came down and and um and this was about the time when we first met um. You'd been hunting on the weeks that I hadn't been hunting and stuff like that. And and then you shot them six deer that day. And, you know, like I'd met Graham's son, Gordy, and, um, you know, and he was just a, a phenomenal hunter as well, you know. Just switched on, just could read the game, read how it was going to play out, anticipate, you know. And, I mean, and he was shooting like doubles and, and, and three deer, but, but no one came and shot six deer. No one came. No one done that. No one. And, um... You know, and anyhow, like, you know, like you did have the dogs at the, at, look, the, the dogs were fascinating. They were in, exceptional dogs. And I know that because I've hunted overseas and I've hunted with dogs and I've hunted with dogs. Look, uh, you know, uh, just some of the stories that I, that I have and, and the other crews and, you know, guys like Nick Bolton that, you know, was the hound um, master and, you know, he, he could... The, the, Man, he, he'd tell those bitches to go one way and the dogs to go the other way, and they mm. would. He could call one one dog out of a hundred with its name. Yeah. You know, he could blow a tune and and it, like a single file, they'd they'd move forward. You know, I mean, that that was phenomenal. But the dogs that John had, I mean, they were the, the only reason they were like that is because of him. Yeah. You know. So we we actually seen the demise of the foxhounds. So some of the dogs we're talking about were the foxhounds, but then we also seen. Mark II, where he, he reinvented his whole pack again, but with beagles and bloodhounds after the foxhounds were banned because of the aggression that they were showing towards deer. So we've seen oh. it twice, but yet his new pack is, is as successful as the previous pack. Um, individual dogs, maybe not so much, but a pack as a whole, absolutely. So he hasn't really missed a beat. So we did see a lot of that. Um, Probably one of the highlight stories for me with you is the time that you and my brother Matt actually come in to get me back out of the bush one day after I chased the pack all day. Um, back then I hunted with just a bum bag and at some stage I realised that it had unzipped and I'd lost everything in there, which was my torch and lighter and um, actually I still had a lighter because I was smoking at the time, but got to the bail up. Just got dark, couldn't do nothing about it, and then there I am. I'm trapped down 
down the few, black. Yeah, a few kilometres off the road. Yeah. Um, managed to get a fire going. I was more than happy to stay in the bush for the night, but I remember. you guys come around. Yeah, we, had to cut your way around too, mind you. Now, did we walk down? Did we walk through and up onto? I think we did. We walked from the other side. Yeah. Down into the black and then up onto your shelf. Yeah. Where, yeah. So we we'd done a long walk coming in after you. Yeah. That time. Yeah. Yeah. And then John and Co kept cutting cutting the round to the track to make it so a bit closer walk out for us. Yeah. But yeah, for I don't know, maybe five hours. I was sitting there in the darkness. I had a bit of a fire going, but I did have a pack of foxhounds there that were lying on me and around yeah. me. And yeah, it was probably a rookie mistake from my part because I lost everything in my bum bag the whole way. Yeah. But yeah. shit happens, well, and yeah. Well, similar to the time, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, you, you threw. Well, how did it go down in the serpent? How was it Snake Edwards and mm. um, you. You dropped some ammo on the ground and you were shooting and you had to run back and pick them up again, was that? Yeah, so there was, yeah. There was that misfired round, which I just uh, ejected out, but then it was a busy day down there and I ended up running out of bullets but had another bail up, yeah, so yeah. went back down and sifting through the ferns and managed to find the misfired find round, the and run then, back up yeah. and use that one to finish, like to shoot this other bail deer, so yeah, see. funny times, but... Well, you know what, mate, when you're hot, you're hot. Like, and not just that, mate. Like, you, some people have a gift to score goals, like I said, mate. And it doesn't matter how you look at it. Like, you, you can do half the work I can do, but, you know, you can put yourself in the right position. And, and, and that, I don't... Whatever that gift is, you look at Ronaldo, you know. I mean, just how, how do you... The, not only does he score the volume of goals, but the difficulty of his of the goals, you know, and it's through his the, his process, the the, the brains, the, the, you know. So, you know, I've always been someone to work my ass off to to get that reward, you know. But you know, there's those that just can manage to think think it out, you know, use their brains. Yeah. So, so there's plenty of times where you overthink things, so true. you zig when you should zag and. That yeah. they're infuriating yeah. those moments, particularly with hound hunting and and even more so on the deer that get away during a hunt because they've hit the river and the dogs have lost them there. Or, um, But you had that one opportunity and instead of cutting right, you've cut left and the deer swung around under you. Like, it, there are moments where you can outsmart yourself, but Absolutely. as a whole, yeah, no, it was, it was some really good times there. So... Talking about your success, you, you did end up having it with that really nice stag down on the Goulburn there that the time. Goulburn. So yeah, yeah. Um, heck, I mean, <coughs> you know, the 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 success was definitely due to the dogs. I mean, all right, we we had a good team and um, it was well organised and we would communicate well and and you know we'd give those directives and we'd support each other and but. You know, the dogs, the, the ability of some of the dogs, not all the dogs, but there, there was a time there, you know, when we had Sultan, um, we had Jagger. Captain. Um, we had Captain. Uh, we had Mick. We had Elsie. Mitch. Um, Mitch. Um, uh, Tommy. Um, uh, yeah. the, there's, there's others. There's others. And I, I'm sad I can't freaking remember the name right now. Yeah. But um, those dogs were... Just impeccable uh, water dogs, you know. And, mm. um, you know, wh what amazes me is w what I've learned over the years is unless you've seen what Samba can do under pressure, I don't really think that you've, you've, uh, you, you fully understand the deer, mm. that, that species of deer. 
Now, dogs can put Samba under pressure like nothing else. Mm. And um, a pack of dogs can really make that deer do things that you would not expect. Now, guys that haven't hunted with hounds or guys that knock the hound hunters, they should take a piece out of that, that, that page because, you know, well, when you've seen a deer and you've pushed it hard and, you, and you've been, you know, its ability to think, you know, and in compromised situations, you know, it just, for you to understand and see that, it just makes you a better hunter. It makes you mm. more experienced. And, you know, when, when, when we see the deer go out of its way just to run through a puddle or go yeah. out of its way just to run uphill with a pack of dogs on it to, to get to a wallow, yeah. to, thinking that it will throw the scent off, you know. Or running past a doe that's bedded up there somewhere, hoping that the dogs will drop off on the doe, like Absolutely. she's the sacrifice, particularly the big stags. Yeah. How many times did we have that happen across multiple weekends where we, we'd start a big stag that we'd shoot a hind, and we'd shoot another hind, then another hind, ah. and then eventually there isn't any that he's aware of and you put a bit of pressure on him and it's a different story, yeah. so yeah. end up bailing up yeah. or he turns to fight or, yeah, very well, unique, some of that intricacies, but... You're right, the bulk of the work is the dogs, but it's also the team leader's sure. capacity yeah. to train the dogs. So Yeah, and I mean, and at the level that these dogs are on, look, yeah. it's just, you know, the, the the fact that they could hunt water, and obviously that's the key. Yeah. You know, if if your dogs can hunt water and, and stick with the deer, now that's a serious pack of dogs, mm. you know. Um, you know, the, the, we, we would wipe out systems, not yeah. just gullies, systems. And, um, you know, we're talking 100 deer. You know, in one like over over the span of a season, yeah, we'd take out that whole that every deer out of that system, um, and the stags that were left were just cunning. And I mean, eventually we would we would get that stag, mm. you know. Um, yeah, so that was still back in the era where we we put extra effort into recovering dogs then to save us having to drive up midweek looking for dogs yeah. all week, which was still pretty regular. It doesn't happen as much now with the GPS collars, yeah. but. A lot of the art of hound hunting is being lost with GPSs. Like I was talking before we started the podcast with young guys only learning to hunt off their GPS now rather than learning to hunt by listening to the dogs sing and learning where they're at, what way they're going. So the strategy's gone out of it. They don't need to know an area and where to strategically place people. They just look at lines potentially, so rightly or wrongly. Um, so, talking hound hunting, you did go over and hunt a mountain lion in the States yeah, so with hounds. So, can you talk us a little bit about that? And yeah, yeah, many, many years later. Um, the, I guess the passion for, um, you know, hunting with dogs, it's, it's there, whether it be a gun dog or a terrier or whatever kind of dog, you know. And, um, yeah, look, something I always wanted to do was, um, was, was hunt with American hounds on either bear or, or cougar. Um, so me and a mate that was from the Sculpt crew, crew as well, um, we decided, yeah, we'd go over. I think it was about 2011. And um, we actually combined a few hunts that trip. We'd done um, a bit of bird shooting, a bit of wing shooting. Um, we had a hunt uh, with some real southern fellas from Georgia uh, on, on um, whitetail deer. Um, so they were running beagles. And then we, we went over to uh, New Mexico and, and hunted uh, mountain lion um, now, we started the trip off uh, in uh, Georgia and 
we got out with a guy who I connected with on um, online, and um, you know we became friends with, and uh, he organised for us to um, be part of um, uh, an organised um, hunt, uh, a bit like a a, a hunt club. Um, and the way they do it over there, they uh, they they have memberships, and they um, basically pay to utilise um, hunting blocks, you know, people's property, right? So the the property owner would uh, receive a bit of income through that and then they could freely hunt it. Um, yep. And very similar in the way that we'd hunt here with hounds, um, but a lot more well-organised. They'd, they'd give you a card with a map of the property and all the um, shooting spots uh, where they anticipate deer to run. And I thought that was well-planned. Um, and just very good communication. You'd know where the dogs are through people telling you and... Um, you know, just everything you, you were updated right throughout the day. You know, if 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 the hunt moved, then you'd be picked up and you'd be put onto another spot, and you'd have you'd have that card like a plan, a map of where you'd be standing, and 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 it was just well illustrated where the, where the deer would run off and these little offshoots and stuff, and that was pretty cool. Um, oh, that was you know, in the morning you'd have breakfast at at like a a clubhouse. Um, and um, and they'd have a morning prayer, and I'd be, it'd be like, you know, fifty southern. I mean, it was a big deal, man. There would be a whole lot of shooters there, you know. And um, so we got to know a lot of people, and everyone was very friendly. It was really good, man. I really, I would do that and recommend that to anybody to go there and, and meet these guys. And and apparently they do this in many of the states in the southern states. Um, yeah, yeah, Louisiana, Florida, um, you know, uh, Georgia, um, Arkansas. So they do. Then we moved on to Arkansas, and we we had a coon hunt, and that was with uh, those uh, plot hounds, tick uh, uh, was it blue tick hounds? And yeah, red and blue ticks. Yeah, yep. So the, these these guys, um, they all had their own hounds, and they brought them all together. And that, yeah, I got a YouTube post there, and that that's that's pretty cool, man. Like these little raccoons, man, they punch on, and yeah. um, you know they really latch on and and give these dogs a, a good good run for their money, and um, just a a real cool way to hunt, man. Yeah, really exciting. A lot of noise. Um, you know, um, I couldn't compare it. The, the the dogs that they're using was was certainly not um, anything like uh, the dogs that would be used on the cougar and the mountain lions in, in New Mexico. Now that was something else. So I mean, you know, as much as I'm, um, you know, I'm proud to have known Mick and Elsie, the the number one dogs from our our old days. You know, I mean. The intelligence that those dogs had, you know. I mean, Mick, Mick was so smart, you know. I'll get off a bit here from yeah, the question, right. but we always go down rabbit holes. Yeah, so. yeah, that's it. <laughs> right, look, the, Mick, the, what was exceptional about Mick, and, and we've seen a lot of dogs come up through the pack over the years, right? A lot of these dogs were fighting for that number one spot, and and inevitably, there's only one, right? And um, you know, Mick at the time he held that spot. And it's the respect that that dog had from other dogs, and they would all follow Mick. But when the dogs don't show respect for other dogs, who are who are quite intelligent, and these dogs hold their own, they they just don't get the numbers to back them up. But mm. when when Mick would voice, or when Elsie would voice, those dogs would come, you know. And it's because they were just highly intelligent, and they'd and it, they wouldn't hunt rubbish. It would only be deer that they'd hunt, and most of the time stags, mm. right? Um, and Mick would never get into blues. He would never fight. He would never get himself injured and ripped up by other dogs. That's what made him smart. He'd stay away from the pack fights. 
He wouldn't get involved in these little bullshit scuffles and that, you know. Over the de- dead deer, uh, yeah. Uh, over anything, even in the... He even always in sat the, back. Even in the pens. Yeah. When I, you know, he would just stay away from all that. That was beneath him, you know. So he really did have the loyalty of all the other pack, you know. And it was just... That was an interesting time when we had about five dogs that were in pole position to be the next mm. in line when Mick stepped off. And it was funny how, how that all works, like those dynamics... You know? So that's almost the wild dog mentality where you've got the alpha um, and th- that demands uh, authority, I guess. So, But the pack also won't tolerate weakness in that leader. So if there's weakness in it, then the pack will turn on them as well. So that's probably going down that wild dog type mentality yeah. there. So yeah, I'm sure it's wolf as well. So it's it's it's... It's in their heritage, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, you've nailed it exactly. That's what exactly what. And just because I sort of tended to the dogs and we had them at the farm, I just yeah, you know, I'd see this sort of stuff. I'd, mm. I'd pick up on this, and I'd I got to know the pack. I was part of the pack. I mean, yep. there was no doubt about it. You know, that was. But you know, as much as I really sort of learnt about the, this pack of ours, and 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 you know, just some of these standout dogs, you know, the performance when when I went to New Mexico, man, this this pack just blew me away, man. I just did. It was like, imagine a pack of, I don't know, he might have had twenty dogs. Imagine at least ten mix, ten Elsies. That's what he had. Mm. These dogs were just, man. You know, these dogs would stick their heads out the can. Like, say, so you'd be cruising along and you'd be tracking roads for hours just for marks, pug marks of the mountain lion, yeah? And you'd see wolf, you'd see bear, you'd see every kind of animal, you know? They've got strange animals. They've got this little dog raccoon-looking thing with a long nose. And they've got... New Mexico is, is amazing, man. Like, they've got stuff, like, imported, like, exotics and that that have been there a 100 years and stuff that people just don't know about. I remember going into, like, one of these Bass Pro shops. I got a poster with all the game animals in New Mexico and the poster was just filled of big game. And, um, you know, the, but getting back to these dogs, like, oh, like I've got, you know, the memory I have, the, these dogs, would be, their heads would be out and they'd be looking at the marks on the road, mate. Now... I don't know how defined the vision of these dogs are, man, or, or any dog, right? I know that they limited, visib- um, you know, colour uh, yeah. vision. And, and, but they're looking at the tracks, man, on the roads, like you and me are, with our heads out the windows, checking these. Mate, you, you can see these dogs are looking at marks, mate. They're, they're using their nose at the same time, 100%. Yeah. Um, you know, he could let these dogs out for a piss and then... And they all know their name, and then they'll get back. In. He'll tell them to get back in. They were so well controlled. You put them on a mark, man. If it's old, they won't voice. And if it's fresh, man, away they go. And yeah. um, you know, like th- this, we were struggling. We really were. We were struggling with the fact that they, there wasn't a lot of snow around, um, and the limits of snow that we did have. Um, you know, I mean, we had some nice days, but too nice for for what we wanted. You know, we wanted fresh powder snow. We wanted. We wanted to find easy marks, and we just didn't find it within like three days of track and raise. It was getting hard, man. We were, you know, we were just spending hours and hours in a truck and eating pastries off the frickin'. We, well, <laughs> that's all we had, you know. Like we weren't catered on very well at all, man. It was horrible, and um, but it, you know, it made up for it with his pack, yeah. you know. And this this guy provides these wilderness hunts where you can take mules in 
to this outback country like in the desert so it's it's alpine desert country and you can go in with mules and a dog pack and you can hunt this wilderness country for like a week yeah. and you can hunt at the same time um you know in a particular time of year you can hunt cougar and um and bears at the same time you know um anyway we, we were there for mountain lion and um the best thing we had, well, and we found these marks on the first day, and we didn't choose to go with them. So by day three, we had to go with them, and and the dog still picked up the scent. That um, that mountain lion, luckily enough, had had hung around a carcass, and it wasn't far. The dogs picked up on it, and they had it treed within probably about twenty minutes of of starting it, um, and straight up a tree it went. And um, you know, oh, th- th- what a sight to be seen. I you know. And and what a memory to hold, because man, when you when you're coming up on on a pack of dogs or maybe twenty dogs, and the noisiest thing you've ever heard in your life. I mean, real deep bellowing yeah. noise, and um, and there's that there's that cougar right sitting there right in the tree right under you, man. It's only like ten yards away from uh, on top of you, you know. That's pretty cool, man. Yeah. Um, you know that that thing got was shot out of the tree, so my mate shot that, and um. And uh, that was pretty. That was a sight to be to be seen. And um, uh, you know, the, those dogs were right on, when that thing fell out of the tree. Those dogs were right on top of it, and it was like a toboggan. They'd all jumped on it and slid right down the hill for about a hundred <laughs> yards, all on top of it. You know, yeah. Uh, so pretty, pretty cool, man. Um, but that that was that was certainly a trip um, that I would do again. Um, I would love to do the whole wilderness thing with the pack horses and all that. Um, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, man. Um, Getting right up there remote with a pack of dogs. Yeah, yeah. So you'd, you'd go in for, you know, I've discussed this with the guy and uh, that's, that's a bit of a dream hunt, man, yeah. that I'd, I'd like to maybe do with my sons one day. Yeah. Um, you know, but also include bears, you know, because uh, I think um, hunt, just just being part of the, that whole hound hunting thing yeah. would be pretty cool, man. That would be a great experience for the kids and myself. And I'd... I'd certainly arrow it, mate. I'd pick up a bow before I'd shoot it out of a tree yeah. with a gun. Yeah. But that was good, man. Yeah. yeah. So back into Australian type hunting, um, you moved up to Darwin. So I'm, I'm pretty sure everywhere you look in Darwin there is adventure. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. about that? Yep. Um, okay. So I'd, I'd finished up with the hounds. I'd, I'd done about 10 years with the hounds. Um and um, um, I, uh, you know, young family, married, and um, things were getting hard to sort of be out every week. I had to uh, have a good sort of think about, you know, how much time I was away from home, and 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 uh, just just to follow my own passions and that, and it wasn't I wasn't being that fair on the on the wife. It's pretty you know? demanding, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, Friday, Friday through to Sunday, and then even midweek at times you're going up looking for dogs so yeah man um yeah it was demand being part of the crew and and you know you you kind of if you're a big part of the crew you know and you're not half ass and you're really committed and devoted to the whole thing yeah you, you 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 really feel um that that demand on on you know doing whatever it takes to be sort of there or every week and and it just it's with a young family, kids and you know, a wife waiting at home, and it's just hard, mate. It's just too hard. It's There's a lot of divorces ah, associated yeah. to hound hunters. So, yeah, yeah. and my my mum and dad were both an example of that. So, yeah, just consumed him and destroyed their relationship. So, yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate, man, but it's real, you know. Yep. So, 
you know, I could see what was going. It was causing arguments and stuff. So I, yeah. I, I, you know, I chose to do the right thing, mate. And um, you know, I had kids that I wanted to sort of um, bring up and um, and be part of that whole hunting scene. But you know, if if you haven't got a household and a home and family to come home to, it ain't going to happen. So, mm. so and you know, just given the fact that I'd been brought up in Melbourne my whole life, and um, you know, we had a family business and that, um, I um. I, I had this notion to, to, to go to Darwin. But what actually gave me the notion was I went to India in 2010. And, you know, I'd spent, um, I'd spent uh, many years reading Jim Corbett novels. And uh, I was always fascinated with this man. Um, um, you know, he was a, for those that don't know, like he, he was, he was a, a British-born, uh, he was an Indian-born but, but British heritage who who could speak the language and who, who basically grew up in India, yeah, um, and um, he was contracted to um, take care of the uh, man-eating, um, uh, you know, famous um, leopards and and tigers, right? So this is in northern India, and um, you know some of these tigers were, um, you know, uh, accountable for you know hundreds, you know, it's documented, well documented, yeah. well documented, um, uh, h- hundreds of deaths, you know, um, so. You know, if if um, if if you read his stories, that you know, um, it, it it just fascinated me that you know that it was an era, uh, and that people of that time never had weapons and guns to to fend off. I mean, um, anyway, so th- without getting too far off track, because I'd love to tell his stories, because they're yeah. just they are so fascinating. It's a big part of my. Um, you know, m- m- you know, just my reading sort of life of you know his, his novels and stories and. Um, I went there basically because of 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 him telling these stories. So, yeah. so he he actually became a um, uh, a naturalist, uh, a conservationist, and um, and he 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 was the first. He he opened up a, par- a national park, yeah, um, and it's called the Jim Corbett National Park. And you can go there and you can um, do the wildlife tours and all that sort of stuff. And and then you would you know you you stay behind uh, electric wire fencing and that, and be like ten foot high and. You'd see all sorts of stuff, man, and um, uh, you know. So this 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 thing I planned, I booked, and I and I went, and um, I, I remember boarding the plane, man, and I knew I was going to India because for the freaking next ten hours, all I heard was people talking, right, eating. I just you'd hear packets of chips going like this, right, <laughs> you know, and uh, and and just the gibberish, man. The noise on the plane was like nothing. It's not. It wasn't like going flying to Japan or anything. Man, the noise, the volume. Man, as soon as you got out of the airport, it was, it was no different. And from that moment on, every second of the day, it was just full of noise. Uh, if it wasn't car horns beeping, people talking, it was just everything, man. It was just amazing. Like, you know, you, you'd be in the, in the traffic and there'd be kids coming up to your window and they'd roll their eyes back and they'd put their face on your window right next to your head sitting in the in the back seat of a car, you know, and they just want money and, and you know, the poverty, just the thing. My, taking all this in was just, my brain was just soaking it all up. It was just too much, you know. It was, uh, it was just just the life, the life that's happening all around you. Anyway, I I got out to this place, uh, Ramnagar is basically where you stay before you go into the Jim Corbett National Park. And, um, you know, I remember going into the first morning and uh, I'd see, like, these kids, um, you know, they, they'd be not they're not at school, but their parents would be re- – this is typhoon country, like uh, monsoon country where everything just floods and 
all the roads get washed away and then and then every season they'd rebuild them all and and these people would just do everything with with their hands just pick up rocks and move them and stuff and the kids would be playing in the dirt and then it'd be this tiger roaring mate because it's the rutting season all right it's, it's january and um and mate 50 to 100 yards 200 yards away there's a tiger roaring mate with these kids playing in it. and it's like it's just not part of the menu, not mm. on the menu. So, that, you know, um, there's too much wildlife there in that for them to, to go and kill humans. There's got to be a reason for them to kill humans, right? So th- this whole Jim Corbett thing was him telling stories about hunting down these man killers. And uh, I'd, I'd, it was about the third day um, we'd, we'd, I'd get out of bed, I'd have me breakfast and, and we'd go out and um, we'd travel into the park from where I was staying and uh, this morning there was a roadblock at a village that we had passed through the last couple of days and there's and we're the first car through. It's like 6 o'clock in the morning, just barely light and this lady, she's standing with a wooden stick crying and swinging this, like holding this stick up and I don't know what she's saying but I knew there was something wrong and the guy turned around and said to me, see out there, there's the man's body and there was body parts across this field Right, I could just barely make him out, and uh, he said a tiger had been here and 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 killed this man, and the tiger's over there in the bush, about three hundred meters away. The tiger was there eating a freaking body, in the bush. This guy, he'd he'd come from another village to meet this girl. He went out for a piss, and this tiger grabbed him. It was the sixth ti- It was the sixth incident. Now this tiger had grabbed. This is the sixth victim. In, in from November to January, so I'm there in January, so the last three months. And um, so what happened um, immediately, you know, minute by minute, there was a road, the, there was just traffic banking up behind me, and uh, within half an hour, there's a kilometre of traffic. So this is, you know, the, the place is alive now. It's another day, and uh, and 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 um, and all this traffic has just come out of nowhere, and. They they want some help. These, the village wants some help, so they've set, they put this tractor across the road and, and set up this roadblock. It's the only thing they could do. They're sick of this, you know. And um, and so the officials have come in on these elephants and um, and they they um, gone over to where this tiger was. And sure enough, the tiger was there. And I heard twenty three shots, man. Wow. Twenty three shots, man. And uh, about an hour later, the uh, the tiger comes up on top of the elephant they've strung it up they've mounted it on top of the elephant man and they've paraded it back right through past all the traffic you know and i've got this the clearest footage man right there right in my face right there and i mean the size of the tiger's forearms you know it was propped up on the on top of the 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 elephant you know um it it was just the size of my legs you know um and the head is just it's it's just enormous the size of these ti- the, these tigers man they're just freaking huge um you know and i mean what a sight to see mate like the the main reason i was there is because of these novels yeah and yet what has just unfolded yeah you know that that that, that was just the highlight of of any trip that i've been on anywhere i think and um you know, okay. You know, it's unfortunate that the tigers had to had to die because of it. But you know, just that that memory of of being in the noise was just phenomenal. The people, the you know, it was just amazing. You know, to see that, you yeah. know, to hear that, just to be part of that that atmosphere, and and 
you know. It's it's a sad story that Tiger had to go like that, but, you know, the thing took out six people, you know. Yeah. Um, so, um, so, you know, and, and um, I guess getting getting back to your, your question was what you know i went to darwin yeah um you know f- for some reason when i go away on these trips doesn't matter where i go i, I always come back with these new notions and, 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 and you know um i, I just set adrift you know yeah. and, and and i thought to myself man like you know i've lived in in melbourne my whole life and i want i want to change man. i want a tree change i want to see change you know, I'm sick of the hustle and bustle, the traffic and just the, the life that I know. I want something different. And that was it. It was simple as that. And I thought, well, let's do it. I'm going to set it up. I'm going to I'm gonna work remotely um, uh, in 2008 because I suppose the story goes a bit further back because in, in, in the late 90s, I started going to Darwin to go fishing. Uh, and, um, you know, I was basically, I'd done it by myself. I just always wanted to go. Um, I said, right, I'm going to go. I'm going to go fishing and I'm going to take a week off. And I went up there by myself. I met a guide and I went fishing for a week and I just fell in love with the place. Yeah. And in two, so 10 years later, we built a house and we, the plan was to just rent it out uh, as an investment thing. And um, so three years after that house was built, uh, we moved into it. And, um, and um, uh, yeah, basically... Um, we we packed up our house in in Kilsyth, put it all on a trailer, and drove it up there. And uh, and I said, well, this is this is it now. I want to make a new start and uh, live a different lifestyle. And um, and you know the kids the kids all sort of you know they they well obviously we're back in Melbourne now, but they you know seven years is a long time. It's an era. You know, and um, I see the changes in the kids. You know, and what what a what a what a place to grow up as a child. Mm. You know, I mean, really, man. What what we experienced in seven years, man. I I, I got up there. I didn't know anyone. Um, I joined I joined the soccer club. The kids went to school. The wife done a reentry course into nursing um, because she was out for so many years with the pregnancy and yeah. raising the kids in Melbourne. And so she's a registered nurse. She got a job at the hospital. Uh, I become a coach up there, which led on to many things, which was pretty cool. The best job I ever had was coaching in Indigenous communities, um, and, um, and 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 the kids, you know, joined athletics. They got into judo, sports, all that sort of shit. And um, and I remember the first day we moved up there, we unpacked the trailer, um, and uh, and I went for a walk, just from where I lived. I went out to the sewer, and, and I walked around the sewer. Um, which is, you know, out the back of Casarina there. And uh, and I seen crocodiles on the first, very first day, you know. And the bird life there, I seen pink-eared ducks. Um, I just, I seen birds that I'd never seen before in my life, you know. It was just bird life in the top end is like no place in the world, man. And I've been to many places, Florida, all across America and, the bird flight is bird life is just stunning in the top end, man. Yeah. And um, and then I uh I I on the weekends I would go out for a walk and I would search places and I'd probe around. I'd look and I, you know, and I'd ask questions. I'd get to know people and I I I became a member of the ADA and um we in actual fact we started the ADA there. We we. Um, we we had a, a double S double A. Sh- I become a member of the the shotgun club, so now I started uh, preparing for geese season. Right, 
Never shot birds. I I I shot a few shotguns here and there, but nothing. You know, I I shot some ducks overseas, but no, nah, you know, never. Never an avid bird or wing shooter, yeah. By by no means, and never a, never really a shotgun shooter by no means either. So, um, and uh, I um, I I went to a double S double A meeting, and it was to promote uh, the start of the season for geese. Um, and that that evening, the ADA were there from Melbourne. And they were trying to promote uh, the ADA, and we said, "Well, we'll start our own club." There was enough of us to do it. Um, not that I knew any of the guys, but I'll I'll put my hand up. Yep, I'll be a member. So we formed a, a little group. Uh, the year later, the the secretary resigned, and I took on the secretary for the next four years, and um, that opened up a few doors. I then um, started um, advertising. Uh, so I had some connections in Arnhem Land, um, and with some uh, with an Aborig- Aboriginal corporation. Uh, I got to know the manager out there, um, and um, I I basically uh, helped bring. Um, southerners up from you know the different states m- mostly melbourne ada guys you know connections that i had already yeah. and um and they would come up for buffalo culls um and it was at the time it was about uh i think it was about f- uh f- five grand for five days as many buffalo as you can kill well wow. yeah so um and that was direct through uh, the Aboriginal Corporation, who at the time uh, uh, a guy was running it, who I, who I become friends with, and um, and he was uh, a Southerner originally, and um, so we got uh, in that first year we got quite a, a few number of, um, uh, of people coming up, um, and a few international clients too. I put it out there in a few different um, platforms and that, yeah. and uh, uh, so that was pretty cool. So then the price went up, and we still got people the next year, and uh, I basically handed that over then. You know, um, I was working on some other stuff. Um, and um, so the rangers up there in, in Arnhem Land were pretty happy with, with that deal. Um, the money was uh, going back into the corporation um, and therefore, you know, the, the, the shareholders would receive, yeah. you know, any dividends or whatever, however, however that worked out. And, um, and at the same time, we were um, getting rid of the, some pest animals um, because there's some issues up there with, um, uh, look, just saltwater protrusion where you know the buffalo make these big channels into the fresh into the salt water yeah um you know they're just you know they're they're overpopulating they're carrying disease all this sort of nonsense i i mean look we we won't get into that but there was that basically that arafura swamp right there in ramanginning which is um the largest uh swamp in the southern hemisphere uh holds the most buffalo that area holds the most buffalo in the in the in in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, and basically uh, now uh, they they've tried to um, chop a cullet for many years. Uh, for three three seasons, uh, they they culled it and they got twelve thousand out of there. Wow. Right. That was on top of what we were shooting out of it. Yeah. Right. So that gives you a gauge of how many numbers above now. Now they've uh, one company has uh, Norman Fisher. Uh, he 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 runs um, uh, Swim Creek Station up there. He has the rights to um, uh, to muster it. So he's he's the sole. Um, um, uh, well, he he's yeah. he's the only one in the country that's that's doing it. So and that's live export, is it? Live export to Vietnam. Yep. Yeah, o- okay. Only only males. Yep. Yep. But he's contracted to take all the buffalo. Yeah. So. Um, so he's got a big breeding program and all sorts going on. It's it's good. I think what he's doing is, is really good. Yeah. Um, um, 
So, you know, that, you know, just networking, getting all these connections, being out there, bringing in hunters, and then I started taking a few more people out there. And, yeah, th this all developed over many years. I mean, seven years is a long time, you know. Yeah. Early days, it was slow going. I was poking around places, trying to find where, where I can hunt, knocking on doors, and, you know, just... um trying to get some doors open just you know learning the ropes and mm -hmm. you know so a lot of my time was um was fishing you yeah. know and I'd, I'd, I'd yeah i basically got a lot of connections through fishing and um yeah so i was juggling fishing and hunting i mean you what a, you know it's just a, what a lifestyle yeah yeah it really was it was just an amazing lifestyle and um you know, I, I then, I then, much like I'd done my apprenticeship with the hounds, like we previously spoke about, I'd done it with geese. Yeah. So this was the big thing now for me. So I've gone out first geese season, bought myself a quad, uh, got myself a shotgun, and you know the vest, and and took you know doing lessons for shooting and and done that, um, you know, pretty religiously, basically, to once twice a week, you know, yeah. and. Um, and I was getting pretty good at it, you know. I was enjoying it. And I was doing a few comps and this sort of stuff. And then, uh, yeah, really got into the whole geese thing. And I got out to the swamps. And you think I could hit a bird? Mate, I, it was it was horrible, man. I, I'd, I'd see there's a large Greek population of uh, hunters up there. And they'd set up all their decoys, mate. And the birds were dropping. Back then it was, I think it was 10, 10 geese, 10 ducks. That was your bag limit. So pretty, pretty generous, man. Really good. And... All sorts of ducks, like four, four or five species of ducks. Your plume whistlers, um, your your uh, wandering whistler, your black ducks, your hardheads, your pinkies. Uh, they are probably the the major. Oh, and your grey teals, right? So some fast fine ducks. I could not hit anything. Yeah, as much as I could hit these clay targets and these skeet and and. You know, I was just, man, I was such a novice, man, but I didn't give up. I, I, I freaking, I worked it, mate. I tell you what, by the end of that season, I was hitting things pretty good. And by the next season, I was totally geared up. I had more equipment, more, I had things mapped out. I, you know, I knew more places. I'd done a lot more homework and I got, I hit that season well. And, uh, I, and mate, I, I, I took people out from different places around the country and overseas and, and they could not believe the numbers of birds. And uh, some of the times guys had come up and they were just astounded how many birds were in the sky. And I just thought this was normal. You know, I'd never hunted anywhere down south on, on waterfowl and that. And, um, man, I had the, the the best training grounds in the world. You know, there was that many birds that I could practice at. And, man, by the, by the end of that second season, man, I was just a gun with that rifle, man. I I was just everything I was shoot uh, aiming at. I was hitting. It was just brilliant. I just I just had this newfound passion that I'd I'd mastered within two two seasons, you know, or at least I think so anyway. <laughs> uh, you know, because I did go to America um, during that trip that I'd mentioned before with the the uh, the the hounds and all that. Yeah. And, Man, you think I could hit a bird when I was over there? We went and hunted in uh, New Mexico one day, and I could not hit nothing, mate. It was just—it goes to show you when you, you know, you, you you get a bit cocky or you know, you just you, you think too hard about something, maybe. And um, anyway, that was a bad day, but um, but yeah, year after year, yeah, that was it, man. As soon as September come in the opening uh, season, that was me. So uh, for three months, three four months of the year, so September to December. Um, that that was I was 
totally devoted to uh, to geese season. And um, man, I I had them worked out. I just I knew the areas well, and then I started travelling into different areas and got onto Aboriginal lands, and I was just everything else was secondary. Fishing was fishing, rifle hunting, bow hunting didn't matter. The geese was was all I cared about, and, and not so much the geese, but the birds, because the geese got too easy. I used to shoot them left-handed, yeah, just to challenge myself, and um, and then I'd go and I'd chase the fast birds, the blackies, and I'd chase the hardheads, and that was where the fun really, you know, really took place. And and uh, and I look back at some of the, you know, like learning the the vegetation, learning the um the area where to walk where not to walk what to look for and, and what to expect and anticipate and you know it's pretty tricky from someone just coming from you know the, the south and then yeah. having to learn it with no guide no one to show you so you know but before too long i'd be walking the swamps and you know there was a few close encounters with crocs um you know um uh you know i'd uh, one week i'd uh, I'd gone in and I'd I'd hunted this area and this time I was I had a gun and I was looking for pigs and, and buffalo and yeah we got you know we got we got onto them this week and then the next week I came back so I'd park my boat up the river tied off and walk inland and um and um it puts me straight there where I want to hunt because I I navigated all this from a chopper yeah and I GPSed all these different spots you know so I hired a chopper and. and because you know you're talking like big area, yeah. You know, you know, and if you haven't got a quad to get around, you got to do it on foot. And if you're not knowing where to go, so I can read maps, no worries. But when I had this chopper, I'm, I'm looking at the best ways, and I'm so I spent a bit of money on chopper flights and that, and I checked out all these areas, and and that's how to do it. Time, yeah. mate, just cut the time in half yeah. straight away. And um, I uh, I I got into these areas, and and that particular week, I I shot some pigs, and then. I, I enjoyed it that much. I came back the second week. Well, we had rain that week. And, and that little bit of rain that we had lifted the water levels up. So when I entered this swamp, the water from where it was last week was was further back. And so I'm walking in water straight away. That's fine. I'm used to, I, I know where, where I can walk and, you know, I, I don't go too deep and, you know, I can kind of gauge what's croc looking sort of, you know, swamps and what's not. And, um, and oh, man... The previous week, I seen a big croc in a big pool, and he obviously owned that little pool. You know, well now that little pool is a big pool, mm. but it's only shallow. We're talking ankle deep, man. At the corner of my eye, I see movement. There's that freaking croc. He's about two hundred meters off that little pool that he was in the week before, and he's in only a few inches of water. And whoa! Now I'm right in the middle of this fucking water hole, like like this water area, this swampy area. And I'm thinking, jeez. So, man, I thought to myself, wow, I'd better back out of here, you know. Man, a few inches of water, it's only above my ankles, and he disappeared. Like, you know, it can act just that easy, man, they can just disappear, you know. So I, that was a bit of a learning lesson. That, and that, you know, that, that corner sort of geared me up for, you know, just where I'm at, you know, and how serious I've got to be, and, you know. And so as, as I progressed and learnt a bit more, I mean, you know, I spent a lot of times with the Aboriginals and we went out hunting crocodiles. We, we'd actually harpoon them and, um, and, uh, and then we, with the ranger group, right? So the, um, it was called the uh, Gural Wooling Rangers, right? They would look after the... So the, there's two sets of rangers in that area of the Arafura. You've got the, the, 
the the saltwater ranges and you got the freshwater ranges, you know. And the the Gurruwilling ranges, they would have a, a an area to to look after, and I'd go out with them and I'd take my boat in there, and um, they would harpoon. And and if you've never seen an Aboriginal throw a spear, man, it's it's very impressive. It's very impressive. I remember going to a show. Um, like a um, like a corroboree thing, um, and they would throw a spear from a hundred meters away with a woomera. A hundred meters, man, and it, the the idea was to slap the spear on a post, like on a tree. It was only like three or four inches wide in diameter, and that and, and these young guys couldn't do it. Man. The old guys they could do it, and to see them from a hundred meters away, man, slap a post. You didn't you wouldn't think a, tr- a spear would travel that far mm. in flight with with that kind of uh, force behind it, you know, but it does, yeah. And anyway, so so a, a 10, 20-yard shot um, at night in the spotlight on a croc with a with a, a breakaway broadhead, you know, um, and, and then we'd sort of pull the, pull the croc up. And, like, they'd gas out quick, man. I didn't expect them to, uh, like, I've had fish fight harder, yeah. you know, and uh, when it's got that spearhead in it, and then you've got to fight it and you bring it up and it wraps itself all up in the rope. And, um, yeah, it's pretty cool, man. And then, then you bring them up, you tape them up and you get them on the boat and you sex them. And, and so I've done a bit of work like that with the rangers and also um, hunted them for food. Um, and I remember one time coming to a, a spring just so, uh, you know, maybe about April when the waters are sort of, um, you know, draining away after the rainy season. Uh, the the pools are pretty clear. Everything's settled down now. Found this croc in about a pool, three meter pool, just consecutive pools, and uh, and uh, this was in Arnhem Land with the Aborigines. And uh, I've grabbed this stick and I've I've prodded this croc. You know, I broke this stick off a freaking tree. It was a, it was about a four meter long stick. You know, it was a branch. Yeah, you know, and and I've prodded it, man, and it's and it's whipped around, and it's grabbed the stick and just threw it out of my hands. I thought, whoa, you know. And I'm leaning over this pool with one hand on a tree while I'm doing it. I'm prodding <laughs> it with one hand, right? Yeah. And um, and uh, and the Aboriginal fellow that I was with, the traditional owner, he's sitting there with a gun. Now, he's telling me to get this croc agitated enough to bring it up out of the pool so we can shoot it, right? And uh, so I've prodded it, and uh, a second time, straight away, it's grabbed the stick again, and this time I've held on, and I could feel the force of this thing. There's about a three-meter croc. And, um, you know, juvenile croc, but still three-meter croc. So like a teenager croc, you know. And uh, now I felt the force of this thing that's grabbed the stick and it's took it, it's, it's really sort of laid into the stick and took it out of my hand. So this time I've, I've grabbed another stick. I've had to grab another stick. I've lost two sticks now. And it's, it's moved over to the other side of the pool and he's started shooting into the pool to try and stir it up a bit. Uh, and it's not like this whole situation. So it's come up out of the pool and it's jumped up out of this pool into another pool a few metres upstream. And he's had a shot, a wild shot at and it's totally missed it, right? Now it's into another pool and it's a bit exhausted after all this, conf- you know, kerfuffle. And, uh, so I've, I've grabbed another stick. It was a bit easy to get to this time and I've, I've sort of whacked it, you know, and, and it's grabbed onto the stick and I'm fighting this thing. And... Um, and I'm hanging over with one hand on, on the branch you know, off this tree and I'm I'm fighting this thing with one hand and um and and it's let go and it's it's come up. So I've stepped back and I've told him, right, it's coming up. And uh it's come straight at it. So it's come up to the surface and it's just started cruising across the top 
top of this little pondage, this little pool thing, and it's and sure enough, he's lined it up and he's and he's hit it, and it's just sort of spiraled downwards into the water with blood streaming out of its head, you know. So he's he's, he's hit it where he had to hit it, and um, it's knocked it out. And now, now we've got to try and figure out how we're going to get this thing. So we tried to make a hook on a branch and sort of hook its leg and pull it up, and we couldn't quite do it because it was quite deep, you know. Um, so I said to him, I'll go in and get it because we, we've made sure that this thing's dead, all right? We've poked it, and you know, and uh, I said, hold my legs, and I'll go in and I'll grab it. And uh, I remember, what am I doing here? Uh, you know, I just thought, you know, I, it was an opportunity I just wanted to, you know, live. And uh, so... I've reached down and I've he's dunked me under the water, held me by my ankles, and I've grabbed its leg and I could feel it twitching, you know. I thought, gee whiz, eh? But look, we, we, we waited for a good while before that thing, you yeah, know, to make sure. But now I pulled that thing up and it was it was pretty cool, man. I, I sat down and I ate that thing with, with the Aboriginals. We we took it all all the meat back to the community. Um, everyone was happy. It was great. It was a great day. We uh, we also we we shot some bush turkey that day. We sat down and we cooked that, and um, yeah, that that was you know being part of the that whole thing with the Aborigines was pretty cool, man. Um, yeah, Darwin's just an amazing place, mate. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. So big buff too. Big buff, yeah. Um, yep. So yeah, the you know gauging those big ones is pretty hard when they're up around a hundred points. Yeah. Um, I generally sort of look at them and I'll say to someone, right, if that ear is 12 inches, right, try and try and sort of double that ear length and then triple it and, and give you a gauge on, you know, so I'll work off the ear length, yeah, and that's how I get some sort, some sort of gauge. And I'll look at the bases and, you know, you, you've quite, you kind of got to be pretty close. When they're hovering around that 100 point, like that, that's obviously the, you know, the benchmark sort of, you know, that everyone wants to go up there and chase and, Everyone wants a hundred point buffalo and all this, and they're they're there. they're definitely there in Arnhem Land, no doubt about it. You know, closer to Darwin, they're a bit harder to find that that size, um, but they can be pretty tricky to judge. Um, when you got those exceptional ones, you'll know straight away. Yeah, you know, I mean, so that's like it's like the, any of the deer species. Once you see the exceptional ones, they they stand out they quite do. often. Yeah. So Samba, when they start, when the antlers start making them look a bit ridiculous because it looks abnormal, that's when you know that they're those 30-plus inch ones. But I imagine the buffalo are the same. Same, yeah. They they just, I don't know, rule of thumb, when, when a buffalo's walking away from you and, 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 you, and you see its horns stick out way beyond its body, you, you kind of know that you, that's a mature bull um, and, you know, you, you sort of up around that 100 mark and... Um, yeah, that's questionable then, you know, yeah. whether you want to shoot it or not. And um, um, but when you, you know, when you see those big ones, man, they really. St- it's kind of funny because we, we shot, we got one there. Young guy came up um, from South uh, South Australia, and he got one. I think it scored about one hundred and five points uh, with the bow, and um, it was chunky, man. It never had the length though. It was really hard to judge uh, when he when we scored at one hundred and five. I did not think it would go that high, you know, but the base, the mass right the way up to its tips was just thick. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, like deer, right? Eh? Like most animals, you, they can be gauged in different yeah. ways, but, um, getting, getting those big ones, man, I, you know, I, 
like the 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 biggest I shot scored 111, and um, uh, that was with a rifle. Sad to say. Uh, I mean, yeah, I shouldn't say that because you know I I enjoyed it. It was a great day. Yeah. I mean, you, you just you know that's that's what I was there for, man. I spent years and years trying to find a big one like that. Yeah. And um, and, and sure enough, we you know we, it paid off. All that work, all all the different places, all the driving. All the costs, all the fuel, just mm. time away from home, and yeah. you know, um, uh, you know, just just hard work trying to get a big one like that, man. Um, um, or at least I was making it hard work. I, don't, you know, I just didn't see many like that. I mean, you know, many times, I, you know, I just preferred not to shoot rather than, you know, because yeah. it's a big job. It's it really is dealing with buffalo. You got to, you know, you're carrying around in your pack, um, just. A lot of weight, water. You're talking four liters a day when you go on, mm. you know, a, a sort of a whole morning hunt. You know, um, by ten o'clock you're really buggered. It's a different. It's it ain't like walking the hill, the alpine country in 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 Victoria. You know, it's a different kind. Like I've never had exhaustion, uh, um, like heat stroke, but I've come close to it. And um, dehydration one day really got me, and it was the first time I experienced it. And I'd been drinking. This is what's strange. I'd, I'd kept my fluids up. I've been riding the quad about eight hours and just navigating some real rough country. And um, that alone just exhausted me. And I was drinking this hot water. Like the water was just hot just from the, the outside air temperature. And it just, you know, it just had its way with me. It really, I was really in a bad way. I'd never ever felt that dehydrated in my life. Um, and yet, I was just sweating more than I was drinking. Mm. And yet, I was still trying to keep a steady drink, drinking rate happening. And um, and I ran out of water. And um, man, I had to get back 30Ks to the car. I had my, my quad. And the plan was to stay the night and camp and hunt the next day. And I couldn't do it. Could not do it. Had no water. Uh, I couldn't get through the night in the in the state that I was feeling. And, mm. and um, yeah, not, not a good position to be in. Never felt that way in my whole life. Never been there before. And... Uh, only one other time after that had I, had, I, had I come close to that, you know, feeling again. Um, but um, yeah, getting back to getting those big buffs, man. Um, just I, I, I just just got to put in the hours, don't yeah. you? You know, you got to search the different areas and put in the hours. There's no real easy way of doing it. Um, you know, look unless you're gonna pay for a chopper and you've got access to uh, just places and you yeah, know, uh, maybe private land or. Aboriginal land or something, but yeah, most most of my hunt was done on Aboriginal land. I was pretty fortunate. I went to school with um, <coughs> David Gopal's son, yeah, um, and I've had a friendship with him for nearly thirty years. Um, he went to French Gully Tech, um, and he basically got me into Mwangi and got me in with the Aboriginal community there, and um, uh, you know, and and along with the Football Federation uh, Northern Territory, who I worked for. Um, as a as a soccer coach uh, for for youth development um, it, with their programs and that um, that opened up uh, uh, quite a few doors for me too. Yeah. Um, so I was I was very fortunate <coughs> that I, I did sort of tap into some uh, you know good resources there, and um, you know I've made some good friends forever there, and I can always uh, sort of venture back into these areas, and, and you know there's some there's some real untouched. Uh, in actual fact, I, I, I'm an employee. I have an employee's license for um, uh, the Gupalu Corporation, so which is an area very difficult to get into. 
it's on the um, it's on the east of the Glide River. Uh, very remote. There's no airstrips. There's um, just overgrown tracks in there. Um, there's no main roads or anything. Um, uh, the 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 easiest way to get in there is to basically fly a chopper in there. Mm. Um, and it's not open to um, <coughs> you know uh, uh, visitors or or, or even uh, the buffalo mustering. So they've not accepted any land use agreements whatsoever for any any um, you know any tourism or any any, any kind of uh, commercial uh, activity. You know, so being in there is really a, truly a wilderness that not many white people have seen. Yeah. You know? um, so maybe crocodile egg hunting and uh, you know that those guys might get in there um, under under land use agreements, but yeah, it's. That so being these kind of places is it's pretty special, man. Yeah, um, <clears throat> getting toured around by you know these Aboriginal people is, is pretty special as well, you know. Um, so yeah, just so many stories, man. Um, yeah, snakes, know. any big python stories? <laughs> Not really, no, um, pl- seen plenty, always see them. Every yeah. it just seemed like every trip I was doing, I was seeing a snake, yeah. uh, but I'd never seen a um, a mulga snake, a, a king brown, mm. never seen one. Um, Plenty of pythons, plenty of grass snakes, plenty of oh, look. Just stepped on snakes, you know, snakes rearing up, and just swamps in in the grass. Right, snakes right near. Well, especially while you geese hunting and that, you get those um, ah, oh, just snakes eating the frogs and all that, you know. <coughs> um, um, yeah, no, uh, you know, uh, plenty of crocodile um encounters. Nothing too drastic where um. Um, you know, I've, I've sort of scraped through, yeah. By you know, by the hair of my teeth or whatever. Yeah, but um, yeah, um, you know, fishing, you know, crocs coming up, uh, you know, on the embankments and that at night time. Daily River one night, you know, thought it was a log. It was a freaking croc lining us up. Um, turn on my headlight and there it is, right there in front of us. Mm-hmm. You know, um, wife worked at the at the Royal Darwin Hospital she had plenty of stories um yeah guys coming in that you don't that you never heard about on on, on radio or, or newspapers either and more so indigenous too yeah um run-ins with crocodiles um and more so um uh bulls from hunting safaris and that um scrub bulls buffaloes yeah a lot of people getting taken and, and injured and gored and busted up of you know met a number of people spoke with a number of people up there with good stories and that you know so that's pretty common more common than you'd think yeah um <coughs> scrub bulls yeah that that's yeah that's that's a tough one because uh you know a lot of people want to go and hunt scrub bulls and I, i'm just not the kind of person that's got the 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 balls to stand in front of a scrub bull that's charging out i always play play the safe card and um um you know, I'm, I'm more of a bow hunter. I'm more passionate about bow hunting. It's become like that for me now. Um, and, you know, I like the stealthy approach. Um, I like using the trees. I like getting close and I like being undetected. Um, uh, you know, the, I've had a run in with a, a scrub bull and I feared for my life. I really thought that, that was it. <laughs> yeah. I really thought that was the last day I'd be living. And, um, you know, my, my, my friend had shot it and it come charging for me. And, uh, I, I had no option but to run. It's, it's all I could do at the time. And as soon as I stepped, I tripped. And before I landed, I spun on my back to watch this thing basically run over me. Um, 
and and I just, uh, you know, I, I just count me lucky stars that <laughs> it did not, you know, have its way with me. And yes. uh, and yeah, we we finished that off, but um, that was about the closest thing that I've had to um, you know, uh, uh, a death like experience. Um, I've had a few bulls line me up, um, and, and uh, just haven't haven't charged and and in in compromising positions where I would have no way I would have gotten gotten away from them. Um, I would have been, you know, in a, in a real serious pickle because that's the other thing you got to think about. You get done out there, um, and you know you're miles away from your vehicle. You're either on foot, you're on a quad. Um, it's just you and your mate, or sometimes yeah. it's just me. You know, <clears throat> the the chance of getting you back, um, you know, or making a phone call even, uh, yeah, it's it's it's, it's highly, um, you know, there's a, there's a high chance you you, you it's not you're not going to get back to uh, medical treatment you know yeah. so you've got to play it smart you know and you've hunted bantang as well oh, so yeah. a bantang uh, are they aggressive yeah um i've not had the experience of a, of a bantang showing signs of aggression at me um um yeah so i've done two three trips um now into bantang country um i've been up to the coburg i've been all around that region um um and um yeah i've I've had some guys come along from overseas with me and um paying clients that have hunted banting and we've never really got into a pickle uh you know they've we've basically finished the job um outright you know we've not experienced a, yeah. a charge or anything like that but um yeah certainly heard the stories um but uh, a very deer-like animal you know nothing like a hunting scrubble or or, or buffalo um Certainly a novelty animal to hunt, um, and in that environment, just just a wonderful, beautiful place, man. Mm. I mean, really, um, you know, the Coburg is just spectacular. It's just so much to do there. Um, we've had it pretty good there because you know we've had use of um, the Aboriginal um, uh, camp and that they've got set up there with aircon, and you know they've got, even got Wi-Fi, man. We, <laughs> you know, we it's an old we 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 started an old pearl mining. Um, camp of Paspali's it's abandoned now and they had the school there and everything and man we set up we brought all our stuff water fuel camping gear the whole lot and um yeah we were camping under a bit of tin and an old abandoned shed and that and uh man we're, we're sitting there first night and um we've me mates checked his phone and he's got wi-fi man we were for the next five days we were watching youtube and you know making calls emails it was just unbelievable mate you know but um yeah, the the number of the banting there. Ah, look, it was just insane because we we. So my first experience there was prior to the wet season, um, and so hunting season basically finished. Dry season's over. The build up is is well and truly in, in place, and, and it's sticky and muggy, and we're getting a bit of rain, so things are starting to turn green, and all these banting are coming back. You know, and I mean, man, we're seeing banting like you wouldn't believe and like good quality animals, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, this particular day, um, there's, 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 I've, I've gone in and hunted two at the one time. Now, either either, I would have happily have shot. And, that, and you, you straight horned banting. The, ideally, that's what everyone's after. They, nobody wants these sort of bicycle handlebar looking things. Um, unfortunately, there's plenty of those, you know. Um, but, yeah, so I've I've found these two animals that I'll, I'll ha happily have taken both, 
um, either either I should say and um, you know I, I, so a two hour stalk it was uh, finally I could get in a position uh, uh, to shoot it where they many times they were onto me and they just couldn't make me out I'd stay still I would stalk behind I would walk with them um, and I just could not get close enough or just the, the right opportunity just did not emerge and man talk about a patient game of cat and mouse it really was it was one of the most thr- thrilling stalks I've had you know it wasn't on my belly sneak in to a herd kind of stalk it was just trying to stick with two animals over while they were meandering and they're strange they don't just feed with their uh, their back facing you and just continue forward man they just they do circles, they go left, they go right, they zig and zag, they just meander around and two sets of eyes, you can just never get a, an opportunity to shoot. I ended up taking a shot on a big animal like that, 45 yards. Uh, I'm comfortable, I shoot practice all the time, you know, and um, I knew with my setup I could do it. No no, no issues there, you know, just a big heavy arrow, uh, high poundage bow, good setup, good broad mm. head, the whole lot. And um, yeah, hard shot. Dropped it, 45 yards, took only a few steps, man. I was just elated. I was happy as Larry because, you know, that was just an epic stalk. Two-hour stalk in mm. my socks and, um, you know, just just a cool animal to hunt, man. Just a cool-looking animal uh, in, a, in, in a really cool place, man, you know. Um, but to go to the Coburg is pretty special because, yeah, you've got, you know, you've got pig hunting, you've got buffalo. Look, the, the pig and the buffalo... Certainly better places other than, you know, to, to hunt them. You know, Coburg's nothing special. But um, just that rugged coastline, the scenery, the, you know, just real, really wild, plenty of crocs, um, really good fishing off the rocks, oysters off the rocks. Honestly, you can go there with with no food. Um, as long as you've got water, you, you, you're fine, you know. And, um, you know, I mean, the Samba deer there, different area. Um, and we only had permits to hunt uh, a, a certain portion of the, 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 the place. So we were restricted with where we could go, what we could do. But, uh, yeah, so, yeah, planning another trip this year. Um, yeah. Got that organised uh, for a few hunters. Um, and, um, yeah, looking looking forward to that. I mean, you know, just... And uh, uh, it's the only place in the world you can legally hunt them um, yeah. that I'm aware of. Um uh, you know, and uh, and the from what I've seen on you know photos on on internet, they they're a totally different animal than what you'd find in Indonesia these days. You know, so I think we're pretty fortunate and blessed that you know we've got such a prized game animal. And yeah. it's, it's a real tricky one too because you know there are pet there are introduced. Um, they're not regarded as a pest animal, and the, the, it's a very touchy thing. Like the there's a bit of heritage there, um, you know, you, they're in a national park, so it's very rare that you'd find, you know, such an easy animal to eradicate, you know, uh, that they've they've managed to keep them, yeah. keep them alive, you know. So, look, uh, it's a, it is an injection uh, into the Aboriginal community up there. It is all, uh, now I believe it's all um, self-owned, Aboriginal-owned, Um so, you know, I think there's um, aspirations to, you know, keep it um, as a as a game animal, you know, and I think that's a good thing. I think yeah, I think that could be done and followed in, in other parts of Australia with with different um, 
you know, game animals too, you know? Yeah, it's a game management, something that we do well in some spots and not very well in others. But yeah. Papua New Guinea, yeah. that would have been an interesting trip. Yeah. I'm sitting here looking at, I'm assuming that's Papua New Guinea and bows, is it? Yeah, bows and, and arrows, sharks. man. Yeah. Yeah. Some, got some man killing bows, man killing arrows there, I should say. Yeah. Um, so you got you got your ones that rip uh, are for men, there you know, um, and obviously you got your hunting kind of arrows, and then you've got your ceremonial arrows. Yeah. Um, um, Papua New Guinea is, uh, look, man, it's it's the wildest, darkest place on earth, mate. And um, well, there's still uh, cannibals there yeah. in isolated pockets. So yeah. that says a lot about the state of the country. Yeah, man. Um, you know, I, I done a I done an article. I done, no, no, I done a, a a magazine piece for the ADA, um, make Dear, Dear Australia, whatever it is. And uh, yeah, I actually won um, some prize they gave me for the best editorial or whatever it was. And, and um, uh, you know, I, I put a lot of time into that story because it, I was so fascinated with the place, and you know, I really truly did not know uh, anything about it before I went. I, I knew it was just one of these last places on earth that's just still wild you know wild humans wild jungles wild animals you know wild coastline the whole lot and man i you know the things uh, this is probably the biggest highlight in my life mate. you know going to Papua new guinea um no electricity no roads no stores mate they these people canoe no 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 fuel no engines yeah there's just there's no there's missionaries were there in the forties, um, that's about it. Yeah. You know, whatever's left there is, you know, it's whatever you find that's not from the jungle, um, has been brought in by boat up the many river courses and you know and um, or maybe chopper. They they've got um, not chopper, but they've in some of them. Villages, larger villages in that area, um, they they'll have airstrips, so they'll they'll bring in food and stuff like that. Um, you know, uh, medical, schooling, supplies, that sort of stuff. Um, but uh, you know, I, I went there at a time in September, I think it was two thousand fifteen, maybe two thousand fourteen. I've been two times now, and uh, they have a, a ceremony which is only at the time was only about three years old. Um, and it basically brings all these tribes from a vast region of the um, of the Aramea River region. They bring them together and they have a cultural ceremony. And it's tribes from far and beyond. And um, you, you're talking headhunters, mate. You're talking, you know, I've got a I've got a basket in there, in that room. And when I bought it, I said to them, "What's what's on the outside?" And it's it's cassowary feathers. I said, what's the basket used for? Collecting berries? And he says, no. The, w the women would put the heads in there, the trophy heads of man in those baskets. Hey? So the village men would go out and they would claim trophies, the heads of men, and put them in those baskets. Right? That's, now, this is, th this is what amazes me. You're, you're somewhere so remote, but yet they speak English. Yeah. But yet they've never seen a white man. All right, so I've gone to this fish camp. So I'm out there. Well, so here, here's how it goes. I got into this because I went on a fishing odyssey with fishermen. 
but I was the only hunter, okay? So I chose to do a bit of fishing on the side when I wasn't hunting. I had a guide from the village, so I had permission, access to anywhere I wanted to go, okay? And um, every day I would get scooted around on a little tender, a little dinghy, and I could go and I could just chase deer and, and they would burn burn the bush, man, and they would flush deer out and I would shoot the deer. And um, and when I wasn't doing that, I would just be walking through the canopy on the ridges and stuff and I'd, I'd be amazed at the bird life. The bird life is just amazing. It's the weirdest birds in the world, man, and it's just so noisy. No monkeys, but like just the noise from the birds. It's just those paradise birds, um, yeah. ground-dwelling birds, uh, those um, horn, great hornbills. You can hear them coming, man. The wingspan is just massive. I've seen them in India, but never so close. These things are just amazing and massive. Um, they've got those brolga, uh, you know, very similar birds to what we have in the top end. Um, they have a spotted whistler there, which I've never shot, and I managed to shoot one of them, which is, uh, we, we have the other whistlers in Australia, but not a spotted whistler. Um, um, they had just all these cockatoos and parrots and all sorts of stuff. And so that was pretty cool, man. Um, um, but yeah, walking around, you know, and I've, I've, I remember this one day walking off a ridge, walking down into the flats, back to the, back to the dinghy. I had to walk across a, a, an open plain. <coughs> and, um, um, I said to, we've come up to like this pandanus, uh, you know, and like swampy area with lotus leaves and that. And I said, ah, this looks very crocodile. Just, I said this to my guide. He goes, nah, no crocs in there. I said, yeah, it look, looks croc. I said, you know, it looks croc. It looks like crocodiles are going to be here, you know. He goes, no, 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 crocodile's back there. I go, what? Back there, where we just walked? He goes, yeah. Why, why didn't you tell me that, you know? <laughs> and uh, and he says, sure enough, he goes, yeah, they, they, they hide in the long grass. Mate, we're 200 metres off the river, off the main river. And the 200 metres across, like, like kind of plain, mm. gra grassy plains, and they're in the long grass. He goes, yeah, they go there, and they breed, and they hide there. They stay there. And uh, he goes, we burn them out. And when they come, we chop them with a machete, or we arrow them. Yeah. That's how they kill them. No guns. They've got no guns. Um, so here's me walking. So I've, I've fallen into this freaking mud pit, and I've, I'm walking around in my jocks. And uh, I've got this gun over my shoulder and um, I walked into this fish camp, right? And these kids have seen me and they started crying and they started running. They'd never seen a white man, huh? And he's had to yell out to them to tell them, hey, it's okay. It's okay. They're visitors. They're friendly. No problem, you know? I've got to the camp. One by one, all these heads just poke out from behind, you know, like little trees and... and, and they were hiding, man. It was like it was like it was like a ghost camp, which turned into a f like you know a little freaking village. And um, man, I ended up, uh, you know, they ended up surrounding me, touching me, and I ended up. And here's me and my jocks, right? And uh, they've got this food cooking. They they make like bread out of like just sort of seeds that they crush. Um, and um, you know, they're offering me everything, man. Everything they had, they were offering it to me. Um, you know, and we walked, I walked over to the, the dinghy, which was probably another hundred yards to the, to the river. And I had an esky there, you know, and my, my guide was, uh, the, the boat operator was waiting there for me, you know, cause we had radios, right? We could radio where I needed to be picked up and all this. 
We could coordinate it, coordinate it well, you know. This is all in the name of deer hunting, of yeah. course, right? And um, and and uh, I've reached to the esky and I've handed these kids a can. They did not know what it was. Never seen it in their lives, and they touched it. It was cold. They've never felt that something could be so cold. They've never seen ice, man. Mm. They drank. Took one. Uh, I said, "Open it, open it." They opened it, and then. None, no one wanted to taste it. So I took it and I tasted it in front of them. Now you have a drink, you know? And then they would hand it. Everyone would take a sip. Everyone. No one would miss out. Everyone would smile. And then I'd give them some ice blocks and they put it in their mouth, man. Huh? First time ever. First time ever they've seen ice, felt ice, felt anything cold, you know? It was just amazing, man. I took a heap of like, ah, uh, just like lollies and pencils and and like little writing pads and all this shit i, t- I took a fucking bag load and just and gave it to them you know i don't know what they would have done with it man but you know like I, I sat there and 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 i had um uh you know i had shots with their bow and arrow and they're all laughing at me i'm trying to shoot into a a banana tree man i could hardly pull the thing back you know um you know it was just amazing man um i i um i we, we had organized a hunt uh, with the village because they had some sort of ceremony going on the next few days. So it was a village hunt. So this camp and this camp and this camp would all come out and we'd go and hunt cassowary, pig, deer, whatever we could get. Right? Basically, you send out dogs and you pick like these little island areas where the animals would stay on, on the high land, right? Not go into the swampy stuff, you know? Um, You've you got to picture everything. It's, it's low-lying, undulated hills with ridges on them and and pretty much everything lives on these ridges nothing really comes out onto the swamps uh during the day you know so you really got to flush everything and you know or burn everything out or you know you just got to be able to expose them some way you know um you might get a chance in the mornings to find deer and that and and we did we we you know like i ended up shooting a decent rooster for, by their standards um, yeah. um early in the morning in the mist every morning it's like foggy Real foggy, which is pretty cool, man. And um, I um, I ended up um, I I ended up um, um, organize being part of this organized hunt, right, with the different camps and that. And um, you know, the night before, I seen this kid. He's about fourteen, and he's making up a bow, and it's all like out of green bamboo, and he's he's making it there and then. I said, "You you you make you you can do this, can you? You can make this." He goes, "Yeah." You know, you're very shy. The kids don't understand English as much as the the older generation, right? He he knows what I'm saying. And I've turned around. I said, "How old is this kid?" And they've said, "Oh, he's about nine. Man, the kid's like 14, 15 years old. You know, they they really don't know what's going on. You know, I said, I said "No, this kid's not nine. This kid's like 14, 15. He's making a freaking bow, man. <laughs> I mean, this thing. You know, he goes, "Yeah, I'm gonna hunt tomorrow with the men." You know, this is like a, a big thing for him. He's stepping up now. Like you know? a rite of passage. Yeah, yeah. Like the, he's part of the hunt now, right? And he's making his bow, you know? And I said, man, that that's amazing. That bow is amazing. Anyway, next day, this kid, he's, he's, he's in my camp. I'm with these guys. We send the dogs out. And these freaking cassowary, man, they've got eyes like freaking, like you would not believe, right? And, um, and uh, anyhow... He he's uh, you know. The 
they spot the slightest movement, you know, like you could not believe, right? And I drew my bow back and straight away it I, I went to I went to release it and the string come off the can. Right? And uh it must have got caught up in a bit of vegetation or something, right? And that was a brand new bow. Right. And and that was that was me out out of the game, right? Here's this kid, he pulled up a bow and then he shot this cassowary right in front of me with his brand new bow, fourteen years old man. You know? Made out of bamboo hit, the evening before. That's right. Here's my freaking fifteen hundred dollar hoop bow that fell apart on the first day, right? And left me with nothing but, you know, a freaking rifle to shoot after that. No. Yeah. The whole purpose was to go there with you know, with, with the bow and shoot a deer with the bow, you know. So that was probably a highlight, you know. Yeah, right very there. much a cultural experience. Yeah, look, it was it was quite amazing, man. And I mean, it just this happened all the time, you know. I I, I was there to hunt; that was the focus. And then I ended up catching a uh, a world trophy record class um, uh, black bass, right? So I, I did try and squeeze in a bit of fishing every day. Uh, now. The way uh, a world record works is you've got to um, uh, measure the fish, preferably have video footage, definitely have a photo. Um, you have to send in your, your line yeah. and the lure that you caught it on. And then you have to um, uh, also take the fish, ground the boat. You can either take it, a, a, a photo, of the, weigh, the sorry, weigh the fish with proper scales uh, on, on land or on the boat, as long as the boat's grounded. Well, we didn't do any of that. So right there, I had the the uh, the biggest fish, the biggest black bass in the fish. Uh, I had caught the biggest black bass, right? And I've broken the world record. Yeah. Right. And that world record has been outstanding. You know, it's been standing right at for for many years, right? Well. I was pretty stoked about that, and I'm thinking that I'm the new record holder, and I was gonna, you know, send away and get it all, you know, authorized and so forth. And it turns out that well, we didn't ground the boat, right? So we couldn't we couldn't comply. Um, anyhow, um, we um, we 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 forgot about that. That was all cool. Two months later, someone broke the record. Hey, really? So, yeah. So I, I held it for two months, and yeah, I was pretty stoked about it. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. pretty cool. Um, Seeker. Seeker, where does it end, eh? Yeah. Um, yep. All right. So the fascination there, um, with Seeker, well, that would go back many years, I reckon. Um, and, you know, I, um, I kind of, uh, I, I've had this passion to go to Japan, man. I've always, you know, when, when you're, when you're into nature, wildlife, hunting and all that, it's, it's hard to explain to somebody, I love nature and, and wildlife and animals, and but I like killing them. Mm. Right? Now, it's a very tough one. It's a very contradicting argument. And I've always been a buff on, on, on nature. Japan's always appealed to me, man. I've always been into birds, wildlife, all that sort of stuff, scenery, fishing and all that, right? And, um, well, what place better than Japan made sense to me, you know? And... A lot of people don't know, but Japan has a, a large hunting fraternity. Yep, so they have clubs. They Over in Japan, you can hunt many animals and many birds. They have many kinds of ducks, waterfowl, uh, upland um, game birds, pheasants, all that sort of stuff, partridge. Um, they have crane. 
they have um, sea rail, right, which I believe is protected, but in some places you can hunt them. So they're a, a mountain-dwelling um, antelope um, yeah. with, sh with short horns. Um, a bit similar to, if I was going to categorise it, maybe to your, you know, your mountain goat in, in Alaska, Canada. Um, they have black bear. They have brown bear, so as in grizzly bear. Um, they have wild boar. They have seeker deer, and they have they have mainland seeker deer, which is your smaller variety. And then they have so basically, in in your North Island, Hokkaido, everything's bigger. Everything is just bigger, and um, the genetic pool is just completely different. You know, um, so yeah, you've got foxes. Um, they have like a, a raccoon fox as well, a raccoon dog. Um, so yeah, they have some pretty cool stuff, man. And um, my interest was to um, go and hunt one of those big seeker uh, stags. And um, years and years, I looked. Oh, I reckon ten years ago, I started looking at Japan. I must have seen a, a TV special on on Japan, and um, and I, I didn't realise all this stuff, all this cool stuff they had over there. You know, um, I I researched how to get a license, how to you know is there any way foreigners can do it it's all, it's all wrapped up all sealed up uh so yeah someone put me on to this guy and he's offering uh he's offering hunts uh with a bow only uh that'll do that's perfect for me the 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 choice was to take my bow with me a uh, compound bow or or shoot a um a crossbow so i chose to shoot a crossbow it was uh, at the time i just thought it was much easier i'll just use his and he'll have it all set up he'll know what he's doing um, mate, when I got there and began walking, um, you know, well, if, firstly, he's got a camp set up in the forest and that, which is fine. And that's, that's all good to accommodate, like in a big Alaskan outfitters trophy camp and that, you know, and, uh, yeah, it, it accommodated a full camp of hunters, you know, six hunters or whatever. And, uh, and, and, and getting out in amongst that kind of forest, man, was just like a forest I've never seen in my life. It was so picturesque, you know, uh, low-lying, um, sort of medium-sized vegetation and, and, and um, just b beautiful, um, you know, like oak trees and maple trees and, um, and, and mossy sort of rocks and, and beautiful little streams and that, and just an ideal place to hunt, easy walking. Um, very confusing to navigate, though. This is what I found. It was... Um, uh, not that I use the GPS, not that I ever have, um, and I always count, I'm always thinking where I'm going, I'm always looking at landmarks, I'm always counting bends, I'm always counting rivers, I'm always, I'm always keeping track of where I'm at, you know, even if I spin around three, four times, I'm, I'm still counting, you know, and it's just something I do so I don't get lost. Well, this place had me bushwhacked, I just could not work out, and I, I've never been lost, man. I've never been lost in my life. And that's not to say I won't ever be lost, you know. There was one, one time you and me went and hunted Frog Hollow. Now, that was a tricky one, getting back out without someone calling us, you know. In the fog. In the fog, yeah. yeah. Uh, on those Razorback ridges, you know. Yeah. That was tricky because when you get on those Razorback ridges, there's other ridges that come off them and uh, you get to a saddle. And which, which, which way is back up? Yeah, again, which way is back up when they yeah. all look like they're going back up and, yeah. and then you end up going up and then you you get thrown off you yeah skew whiffed you know and well this was not like that but just trickier it was well, not tricky it's just just kind of weird to work out right yeah it's, it's like it's like a hundred little ridges and, and little in you know, gullies and stuff and you just get bushwhacked easy but 
the deer, the deer sign, the deer in there, the noise, the the being uh being a um the the rutting season in in September, um, man, there's there's no there's no predators keeping check of these deers. Is it, I've, I've actually done a bit of research and. They've got problems with the deer numbers, inclining deer numbers. They're trying to promote hunting. Yeah. The 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 government's um actually um uh, holding um sort of like workshops and stuff, and um, they're trying to promote eating venison and you know um just um you know producing um um more hunters in the field, um promoting um uh, hunting um clubs and associations um you know so. That, that's what's happening over there at the moment with the deer numbers. Um, so therefore, with that kind of deer numbers, there, there's some there's some serious stags over there. And um, uh, you know, the 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 first day we'll, we'll straight in on 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 the stags. And I mean, man, you could hear them roaring all over the place. It was like I mean, I've hunted roost deer. Um, uh, you know, I've in the last ten years I've been going to different places around Australia and and trying not to miss the rut, uh, fellow deer rut, red deer rut. I've been in New Zealand seven six years in a row back in the early two thousands and and hunting red deer and char and tammy and all, you know, tammy yeah. and char and, and you know been around the rut the whole for many years but never have I experienced um, rut hunting like I have in Japan. Uh, just the number of stags and the quality stags. Um, you know, real, just, just real sort of, you know, get your, you know, the hairs on your back raised and you just, you know, you, it's just peaky, man, because they're coming, they're charging in on you, you know. I mean, I've heard of that, but I, I haven't really experienced it with the red deer and all that, you know. But, yeah, with the seeker deer, man, they're really aggressive um, deer and um, we're using a, a, like a recorder. Uh, yeah. So that's legal over there to do that. Um, and... And these these deer, just basically, um, they you know there's there's just such a population of them um, where it, it, it's not that hard to hunt them, you know. Um, and when you're sitting there calling them in and they're coming to you, uh, now this was the first year. The second year I went wasn't that easy. They'd had a dry season, and and we just weren't getting on top of the deer. And maybe I'd gone a bit too late in the season as well. Um, but when those deer come in, man, and um, and they present that shot, mate, and with such a big rack, you you certainly you certainly tested with that buck fever, I tell you, you mm. know, because oh, look, you, we're not used to, like the, you know we're talking you know forty inches stuff, you know, we're talking big deer, you know, and I mean we're talking a lot of them, you know, and you know there was a few missed opportunities that I took there, but the one the one deer that I did uh, take. Um, you know, it was. I was lucky to get it actually because the uh, the the scope on the crossbow actually fogged up, and I really I really had to sort of whatever I could see through that scope. I had to work from the back end of the deer, and work my way forward, uh, and just sort of pinpoint that. And you know, it was a twenty yard shot, so I had to aim for something, and I managed to sneak one into it. But those those uh, crossbows, they really do damage. They they rip. They just rake right through the deer and they cut it right open. And, I mean, that, that really done a lot of damage. Well, we, we've we just clicked over a couple of hours. So, yeah. On top of, uh, on uh, top of uh, an hour of talking beforehand. Prior yeah. That, yeah. 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 So, it's been an interesting talk. You've done a lot. Yeah. I've really enjoyed it. I'm sure other people are going to enjoy it. And yeah. um, 
yeah. you just got on Instagram. Yeah. Um, if people want to check you out on there, you're just Stuart Forbes Outdoorsman. So thanks for coming on, Stu. It's yeah, been man. a blast. Yeah, you bet, mate. I've, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed catching up. We've enjoyed talking hunting. Yeah. You know, um, enjoy telling me stories. Yeah, yeah. cool. No worries. Right. Good on you, man. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hunting Countdown on a podcast. If you would like any information from today's show, please don't hesitate to contact us on huntingcampdownunder at gmail.com or simply hit us up on any of our social media outlets on Instagram or Facebook. Be sure to join us next week for another awesome episode and we look forward to sharing another story from Hunting Camp Down Under. Bye for now.